1 Peter, we've been talking about suffering and struggling and how to live as Christians in a world that is decidedly unchristian. And, and one of the things that's nice about 1 Peter is that it's a reminder that it's always been like this. Like, 1 Peter was written literally 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago. And it's still like this today, okay? So take some comfort in that, right? Um, but so we start here. Let's go ahead and just look. Um, London, could you read 1 Peter 5, do 1 and 2? 1 and 2. Good. Okay, so... Peter, so Ben, Peter is, I didn't actually call you Peter, Ben, Peter is talking to what group of people here, can you kind of judge it based on verses one and two, what, yes, Christians, but a specific group of people in the church, good, elders, okay, pastors, leaders in the church, now this whole chapter is not just for elders, okay, but this is important, okay, for a lot of, one, because you guys are one generation away from being that, okay, you guys are one generation of being leaders in your churches, right, so that's fun, um, so keep that in mind, but, so, what, why would Peter be writing to church leaders in a book about suffering in the culture, why would he be talking to, Devin, take a swing, why would he be writing to leaders of the church uh, in a book about the church suffering in culture, Okay, Mm-mm, that's fine. Maddie, what do you think? Why would he be writing to the leaders? What role would the leaders have? Probably because, like, that's been her education. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, Peter, in Peter's mind, one of the key ways for a church to endure during difficult times is to watch its leaders endure during difficult times. Okay? Um, so, Peter is is talking to elders about as your church is going to suffer for doing the right thing, they're going to be looking to you. And if you don't have it, then they certainly won't, right? Um, London, just read verse 1. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in his glory to be revealed. Good. So Peter is not just sharing with them in the suffering, Alexa, but at the end of the first verse, what else is he going to share with them in? Yeah. Peter's saying, keep the whole picture in view, right? This is not the whole story, okay? Um, I'm going to be a part of the glory with you that is to come, right? Remember, this broken marriage is not all that there is. And sometimes that's the only hope we have, okay? Sometimes the hope is not in, and you guys will see this as you get older, unfortunately, and some of you, unfortunately, already know this in some areas of your life, but sometimes the hope is not that things are going to get better on this side. Does that make sense? Sometimes the only, and I don't mean that in a, in a despairing way, the only hope that's left, but sometimes the only hope that's left is that one day it'll be over, right? One day this thing that you're stuck in that's not coming out, it will be over. And, and it won't just be over like you'll be at neutral. It'll be over and you'll be in glory. And that's like an old person way of saying it, but it's true. Like we'll be in heaven, like the sun will hit your face for the first time for real. Um, and all the things you've been missing in this world. You know, we did, I, I'm going to talk about this later too, but remember the first night we were in First Peter? Some of you might have been here, elect exiles. I, I had that big extension cord with the little blue piece of tape on it. And if the cord goes on forever, right, that's our eternal life. But the little blue piece of tape is our life here on this earth. 
And we, and I do this too all the time, we get stuck in this little realm thinking, gosh, is this really it? Is this the rest of my life? Well, the crazy part of it is, one, yes, maybe this is going to be the rest of your life, but there's more to your life than just the rest of your life. Does that make sense? There's more. But also we look to what's coming later. This is not the end. So now we look at verses 2 through 4. Ben, could you read 2 through 4? Good. So notice here, Peter's big concern is not so much what we do, but how we do it. Okay. In my version, Peter's instruction of what to do in verse 2 is shepherd the flock. That's it. That's three words in the next like 30 words that come after that. That's what elders are to do is shepherd the flock, but how do we do it? One, willingly, is what mine says, or eagerly, not under compulsion. Um, you have to want to be in ministry, okay? To want to be in ministry. I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a huge fan of stories where people are like, well, I didn't want to be in ministry, but I felt like God was calling me to it. Well, gosh, that's inspiring. Like, or, or I didn't want to be in the mission field, but I felt like the Lord was just dragging me to it, and so I gave in, and now I love it. And it's like, well, okay. Like, I mean, I'm glad, but like, one, there, now, are there people who didn't want to be in ministry, but the Lord drug them into it, and now they love it? Absolutely, 100%. But we don't need to keep pushing the idea that God will only call you to do things that you hate. Like, that's all he's going to If you feel like, if you don't want to do it, that's what the Lord's calling you to do. That, in what area of life does that make sense at all? But it, since it's the church, we're like, oh, no, it, that must be it. Like, one of the ways he's, one of the things I wrote here in bold is, Part of being qualified to do something is wanting to do it. Part of being qualified to do something is wanting to do it. The Lord is, he is qualifying you to do it, in part as in making you want to do this thing. Does that make sense? We talked about that in our calling series. Um, ben, can you just read verse, let's see, uh, just read verse 2 um, Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, and then do the rest of the verse. Not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Good. Not for dishonest gain. Peter is not saying that pastors shouldn't be paid. Amen. Pastors should be paid. They should be. Gain is not the problem. What kind of gain is it been? Does anyone have anything other than dishonest? Yeah, shameful, dishonest gain. That's the problem. So, and, and what do you think he's talking about? Not for dishonest gain. What does he mean? What do we need to look out for? Yeah, good, London. This self-centeredness that comes with it. Now, I think money is definitely part of this here. Oh, the Lord will, you know, prosperity gospel abounds, right? If you'll give me this, I'm going to help you. The Lord will bless you. But I think there's more than just money here. What else do pastors or, or ministry leaders or even just regular people in the church what other kind of dishonest gain can we get? Or what kind of gain can we get that's not good? Give me like two examples. I've got one, but I want to see if you can hone in on it. Great. Literally all of those are so good. And they mean exactly, they all kind of mean the same thing, and that's what I'm, I wrote being cool. That's what this is. Like, that's what it is. Like, 
And this is what's crazy. So we'll do pastors and we'll do people who aren't pastors. You become a pastor, it's so weird because everybody in church wants to talk to you now. But none of, but all of your unfriends church, all your unchurched friends don't want to talk to you anymore. It's like this weird trade-off. Like you become a pastor and all your unchurched friends are like, oh. Then they don't talk to you anymore. But all the church people are like, oh my gosh. And like everyone wants to talk to you. Like, but especially in the South, not so much in other parts of the world, but especially in the South, like more people want to shake your hand. Like high schoolers want you in all their pictures because you're the youth pastor and whatever. But here's what happens. Here's what happens in church. And this happens to pastors too, but it happens to everybody. Being cool is a wall that separates you from the rest of the church. Does that make sense? For everybody. This isn't pastors. This is everybody. It can be pastors too. Being cool is a wall that separates you from the rest of the church. That's dishonest gain. Because now what's ironic about that? What's ironic about a pastor becoming cool? What's ironic about that? What's weird about that? What doesn't add up about that? Take a swing. Ben, what are you cooking on? What's, what's ironic about a pastor? Think about what being cool does. It's bad. And what's ironic about that happening to a pastor in particular? Yeah, I think it, it makes you the least qualified to be a leader in your church. Remember, um, remember when Jesus washes Peter's feet, right? And what is Peter's reaction to Jesus washing his feet? What's his reaction? Yeah, <laughs> that was really good, Alexa. Um, yeah, you like really took me there. Um, he says, no, don't, don't do this. Don't do this. Why, though? Why would Jesus, remember, Washing feet was reserved for, for the lowest of the low, right? Why would Jesus be, or excuse me, why would Peter be super offended that Jesus is doing this? Why would Peter be, go ahead. Because he viewed Jesus as the teacher, the rabbi. Mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. It's because this isn't, and, and, I, and I mean this, I know it sounds kind of silly, but because this isn't what cool people do. This isn't how you start a movement. You start a movement by being cool. By getting the celebrities, by getting the wealthy people. You're not going to get that by doing... That's what Peter's doing. He's giving Jesus advice on how to start this movement. Now, And remember, too, when Jesus says, I'm going to die, and what is Peter's reaction to that? What is Peter's reaction to that? You guys remember this? What does Peter say to Jesus? If, if, you're, if you died... Like, no. Wasn't it like, if, was it like if I'll go to the cross with you or something? Different... Yes, but different. Um, this is a different time. This is a different time. He said he basically says, "Ew, gross, no." He says, "He says, yeah." He says, "You, you will not. You surely will not die." And Jesus responds to Peter. Do you remember what he says? He says, "To get behind me," and he calls him what? Satan. And this is in reference to Peter saying, "No, no, Jesus, you can't start a movement like that. Dying on the cross is a shameful thing." You can't be shameful. You can't lower yourself. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's how Jesus views dishonest gain in the church and being cool. in the. Now, again, I've talked about this before. There's nothing wrong with being popular or being well-liked. I immediately in the Bible, I think of King David. King David was cool. He's a good-looking guy. He's a powerful guy. He loves the Lord. He's cool. He's Everyone in, in the nation wanted to be like David. They loved David. There's nothing wrong with being cool. But when we worship being cool, right? Some of you have different statuses with friends and you're popular in certain groups. That's a gift from the Lord. The Lord has enabled you to have status with people. 
Um, Matt Chandler always talks about, if you're in college, you need to lead a small group of younger kids. And the college students are always like, Matt, I'm not cool, though. And he always says, they don't know that. And he's right. Like, they don't know that. They think you're cool. So use that. Use that influence the Lord has given you, right? When we worship being cool, it makes us unwilling to eat with the least of these. Does that make sense? And that's the problem with that, is that we can start to worship it. And when leaders are afraid to look bad because it will lower them, when leaders are afraid to have hard conversations with people because it will lower their status, that's dishonest gain. I'm keeping my cool status, but I'm sacrificing my role as leader to do it. That's what you guys are going to have to do as leaders in the workplace. As parents, parents do this all the time. They don't want to sacrifice their status with their kids by lowering themselves to serve them through discipline, through saying you have to go back upstairs and change or whatever, or through saying, no, you, I can't let you go to this party or I won't let you go to this movie with your friend, knowing that it's best for their kid's soul, but they don't want to sacrifice that, that capital that they've gained with it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's dishonest gain, and that's what Peter wants us to be on the lookout for. Does that make sense? Um, let's see here. Uh, not domineering. Ben, can you just read three and four? Good. We'll come back to the chief shepherd in verse 4, but mine in 3 says, not domineering or lording it over people. Um, this is what one quote says. A pastor, or and, and I know some of you, most of you are not going to be pastors, so don't think, oh, this doesn't apply. Like, leading in a church or leading somewhere as representative of the church. A leader should not be the sort of person that is always exerting power, always demanding rather than serving, always insisting on his or her way, even when he knows it's wrong. Instead, elders are, be, are to be examples to the flock of humility, of self-sacrifice, of generosity and devotion, um, and, and especially of obedience to Jesus. You'll see this. Your whole church will be affected by your stance on this. If you value being cool, the people who follow you will value being cool. If you value being the first one to get their hands dirty to help, the people who follow you will be the... Well, the way you lead affects the whole ethos of who you're leading. Does that make sense? Anyway, wise words from Peter. Um, London, you did such a good job, too. Can you do verse 5? In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Good. Humility is used in there twice, okay, or maybe even three times. It is so easy at your age in college to go what's called cage stage. Do you guys know what this is? Have you guys heard of this? Do you know what this is, London? It's like, it's like you know, have you ever heard of cage stage Calvinism? Do you guys know what this is? Okay, we need to talk about Calvinism at some point. It's so awesome. Anyway, we're going to do it, but Reformed theology. Anyway, so cage stage means you've just learned some truth in Scripture and you're gunning for people now. Does that make sense? Like you've just learned that, that Jesus is better than politics, so watch out at Thanksgiving, great aunt, whoever, Facebook, because you're, does that make sense? Like, because you're ready to like throw down. I, I see I've hit a soft spot with some of you. Um, or like you've just learned about Reformed theology and you're ready to go toe to toe. Or like you, you like, it, or you've learned, you, you're learning all these wonderful things from pastors online and then you go to church on Sunday and your pastor doesn't live up to 
those guys online. Does that make sense? And so you get angry and you grow bitter. And this happens to me too. You get angry, you grow bitter. That knowledge, remember what we talked about, the heart is an idol factory? Ben, what does a factory do? Yeah. So if our hearts are idol factories, we take everything, even good teaching, and we make an idol out of it. So that's why Peter says to clothe yourselves, as, especially as younger Christians, in humility. Because you're going to see a lot of problems with the system, with the way the former generations have done it. And you're going to want to run in there right now and change things. That fire is good. I want you to keep it. But keep it without growing bitter. Does that make sense? Patiently wait your turn. It's true. Because if you don't, you're going to grow bitter. Because the Lord doesn't have you in a leadership role yet. But he does have you leading other people. Younger people, people like you, but, oh, we don't want that leadership. But no, but that's what the Lord's given you right now. So focus on leading them in that direction, right? Okay? But he also says to clothe yourself in humility. And, I, and this is an example that I thought was really interesting. In the church, clothe yourself in humility. And I know it's funny, but, but follow me. It is unthinkable that you would walk around naked in public right? Clothe yourself, right? It's unthinkable to think you would walk around naked in public. It is equally unthinkable in Peter's mind for you to walk around the church arrogantly. Does that make sense? You see someone walking around. It it, it doesn't make sense the way the world works. If you see someone walking around naked, you would think they've really come unhinged. They do not need to be out here like this, right? In the same way, Peter is saying, if you see someone walking around the church stripped of their humility, you should say, this is not where they belong. They shouldn't be here. Now, not to say that you can't bring arrogant people to church. Of course you can. But it's Peter's way of saying, arrogance is so against the fabric of the church, it does not belong here. It doesn't go here. We don't do that here. I heard a a quote, we don't strut ever. We don't, as a church. We don't strut ever. That's not what we do, right? There's no room for that. And, and it's just as crazy, what are you do? Like, if you see someone walk around, if your buddy walk around naked, you'd be like, what are you doing? In the same, that attitude needs to be sent towards people who are arrogant in the church. You pull them aside. What are you doing? What is going on? That's the point that Peter's making here. Um, Devin, can you read 6 and 7? Good. So verse 6 is what to do. Verse 7 is how to do it. Devin, read 6 till I'll tell you to stop. Great job. All right. You knew I was doing it. Verse 7 is how you do it. London, read verse 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So humble yourselves before God. Well, if I tell you to be humble, that's like me telling you to be thankful. It doesn't, it doesn't trigger that way. It won't work. How do you humble yourself before God? Verse 7, by casting all your cares on him. That's humility. Refusing to pray is not maturity. It's immaturity. It's arrogance. It's not humility. It's It's not humble to say, oh, the Lord doesn't want to hear about this. That's not humility. That's arrogance. Because we won't bring it to the Lord. We won't admit that we need his help. Okay? Um, 
But why do we pray to God? Why do we give our anxieties to the Lord? London, read seven one more time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Okay. First of all, humbling yourself before the Lord, serving the Lord is going to bring you anxiety. Okay? That's what it says. Verse six. Humble yourself before the Lord. Serve the Lord. And as you serve the Lord, as you serve the Lord and it leads you into having really hard conversations with people, as it leads you into admitting some sins that you don't want to admit to some close friends of yours, as it leads you into doing difficult things in the name of the Lord, that's going to make you wrestle with it up here. And as you wrestle with it up here, we cast those cares on the Lord. And we do it because why, London? Because he cares for you. Okay. Um, We are so much more lost in our sins than we realize. We are so much more lost in our sins than we realize. Because here's what I mean. When I hear that God cares for me when when I pray, do you know what my immediate reaction is? What's your immediate reaction if I tell you that? God cares for you when you pray. Mine is, no, he doesn't. Because here's why. Do you know how many things I've prayed for in my life that have not happened? Like 10 million and eight things that I've prayed for in my life. And now, some of the things that I've prayed for in my life were, like, okay, so back up. Were any of you guys at Lunch Encounter at Barry? Okay, no, you weren't. So you haven't heard this. All right. So, like, you know, this is the part of the sermon or the talk where I'm like, look, there are some things in my life that I prayed for, and this is true. There are some things in my life that I prayed for that God has not given me. And looking back, I'm like, wow. Thank you. You were looking out for me there by not. Thank you for not letting me marry this person because they were crazy or whatever. Like, thank you for not getting me that job because now I have a better job or whatever, right? And that's true. And sometimes that's true, but not for all of it. There's been some stuff that I've prayed for that I've really thought that I needed it and like good things. Like, I didn't want my stepdad to die of cancer, I didn't want that. I think that's a good prayer that we can pray. But the Lord, in his wisdom, said no to that prayer. And so what happens to me in my... This is how we're more lost than we realize. In my sinfulness, when God doesn't grant my prayer requests, I become disappointed, and then I become disillusioned. Do you guys know what disillusioned means? What does disillusioned mean? Do you know, Ben, what that means? Disillusioned? Yeah, like if you become disillusioned with, with the government, it's because the government has let you down so much that you think it's just time to completely revamp it. I become disillusioned with prayer when God doesn't give me the things that I pray for. Does that make sense? But this verse is so helpful for me. London, read 7 one more time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Because he cares for me. It does not say... Devin, not a trick question. Where does it say in verse 7 that God's going to grant all my requests? It does not say that in there. It does not say that. But it doesn't say that he thinks my requests are stupid either. Do you catch that? It doesn't say that. According to this verse, when I am brokenhearted and I ask God for the same thing for the 5,000th time, He does not roll his eyes and say, I can't believe you're asking me for this again. London, according to this verse, how does God feel about me when I ask him for the same thing for the 5,000th time? It shows humility and 
yeah, he doesn't just care about the request. He cares about me. I'm brokenhearted. I want this. The Lord's not giving it to me, and I'm brokenhearted about it. It doesn't say in here that he doesn't care about that or that he rolls his eyes. It doesn't say that he's going to give it to me, but it says that he cares about me in this moment. And think about this section. This theme of this section is elders who suffer with their people. Shepherds who suffer with their people. And what is Jesus called in verse 4? The chief shepherd. Jesus is the one who truly knows what it's like to suffer with his people. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if there's any other way that I can get out of this, please get me out of this. And what is God's response to him in one word, basically? No. He says no. There is no, not in a mean way, but it says there is no other way. The answer is no. The greatest thing to ever happen to the human race, the death and resurrection of Jesus, came from a prayer to which the answer was no. Do you see that? Came from a prayer. Jesus, Lord, get me out of this. And the Lord says no. Think about that the next time the Lord tells you no to something. Okay? Now, that's true. There's, oh, there's your big theology. Yeah, yes, the Lord is doing something wonderful in his no. And that's true. Look at the life of Jesus. But again, London, tell me one more time. How does the Lord feel about us according to verse 7 when we pray these things? He cares for us. I gave this example last semester. No, two semesters ago we went through 1 John, so a year ago. Uh, you guys read Narnia at all? Okay, the first book in the Narnia series, according to the chronology of the series, is called The Magician's Nephew. Okay? The first book is about this character named Digory or Diggory, whatever, I don't care. It's called, I'm, I go Digory. But, so Digory's mother is dying. Okay? His mother is dying. We, I don't think it tells us the disease. It's probably cancer, but we don't know. And Digory goes to Narnia and he meets Aslan who is the Christ figure, right? Narnia is an allegory. Aslan represents Jesus. So in Lewis's mind, C.S. Lewis's mind, this is Diagory who has a dying mother talking to Jesus. And remember verse 7, he cares for you. Listen to what it says. Diagory thought of his mother, and he thought of the great hopes he had, and how they were all dying away. And a lump came into his throat, and tears in his eyes, and he blurted out to the lion, please, please, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? Up until then, he had been looking at the lion's paws and huge claws on them. And now in his sadness, he looked up at the lion's face. He cares for you. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the lion's face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears were in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared to Digory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sadder about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know your grief is great. He felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. He cares for you. Jesus' heart is the only heart that's not dirtied up by sin. So when he is sad about what you're sad about, he's even more sad. Does that make sense? He's even angrier than you are 
about how you've been wronged. Does that make sense? He cares for you even more. It doesn't say in here that he... Now, in the book, Aslan does end up helping Diagory, but the point of this... That's why Lewis doesn't put it in here. Because the point is not that you're going to get what you ask. And sometimes that sucks. It's really hard. But this... But this and this verse doesn't guarantee that God will give us what we ask for, but it does guarantee. It does guarantee that he cares for you when you ask him about it, which is so helpful when we pray. Does that make sense? He hears you more clearly than any other person ever will hear you. This is why it's really important, too. You guys live in a generation where a lot of people in your generation are doing what's called deconstructing. Do you know what this means? You guys familiar with deconstructing? Deconstructing is when you leave the Christian faith because you see things in it that disappoint you. This is a problem with leaving the faith at your age, is that you aren't able to stick around long enough to see these truths of Christianity play out in your life. When you get married one day and your spouse tells you at the altar, I love you, that's true in that moment, but it takes years to work that out. Does that make sense? For it to settle in your life. Do you know what I mean? Um, The Bible has to work its way into your heart over the years. Truths of Christianity have to work its way in there over the years. And one of the truths that's going to take years to work in is the fact that God cares about you when you pray. That's going to be hard for you to under... Well, I prayed twice and it didn't happen, so I'm out. It's got to, you've got to give it longer than that to settle into your heart. Do you see what I mean? To settle in. So pray. Well, why? He's not going to give me what I ask. Well, the Bible doesn't guarantee that, but it does guarantee that God will listen with the most tender heart every time you speak to him. And he will never withhold something out of hatred. He will never withhold something from you out of hatred. Does that make sense? Okay, great. That was two verses. Uh, ben, can you do eight and nine? good. Resist. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. These are verbs, So, which is, which is important because 6 and 7 is about prayer, and then 8 and 9 is about doing. Casting all our cares on God does not then make us passive. All right, Lord, help me with my marriage. Okay, now I'm just going to sit around and wait for the Lord to help me on my marriage. That's not what that means. Does that make sense? In fact, sometimes the hearts of our prayers are revealed after we pray. If you, Lord, I really pray for my friend that he would come to know the Lord. How am I going to be able to tell, based on what I just read, how am I going to be able to tell whether or not you really want your friend to come to the Lord? You're pursuing it with them, talking to them, Good. Them. After your prayer. Does that make sense? Now, again, it's up to the Lord. Like well, That's why we pray. But Peter says to pray, and then he gives us stuff to do while we're praying, while we're living that lifestyle. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Use your common sense. We act on the things we've prayed for as best we can. Be sober-minded. Because when we're not sober-minded, when we're not watchful, when we are not ready to resist, the devil takes advantage of that. Here's a note, too, on resistance. This sounds like, I know it's like nails on a chalkboard. 
to resist the things that you want. Because our culture thinks, London, does our culture teach us that resisting our urges, does that make us more human or less human when we resist the things that we want? It makes us less human, less of a person when we resist our urges. But the Bible teaches us basically the opposite. Resisting your sin doesn't make you less human. It's actually making you more human. It's resetting your soul, okay? Resisting your sinful urges is going to look so strange and stupid to the watching world, but it's a normal part of following Christ, okay? Alexa, could you read 10 and 11? Cool. Notice in 12, after you have suffered, how long does it say in verse 10? I'm sorry, I don't know why I said 12. In verse 10, uh, how long will you suffer for? A A little while. Remember, guys, remember that visual aid with that cord. It's a little while. And the only reason we think this feels like forever is because we don't actually know what forever feels like. Okay? That's coming. This is not it. Your broken family situation is not it. Your broken marriage is not it. There's more to come later. So my version says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who's called you into glory will himself do four things. London, what's the first of your four things in verse 10? If something needs to be restored, what's happened to it? Yeah. And if Jesus is going to restore us when we die... What's going to happen to us, Devin, during this life then, if we need to be restored later? Yes. This life, that's never on the Instagram stuff. I don't know why. This life is going to break us down. Our hope is in being restored by Jesus later. Okay? If, and then the, what's the next one in yours, Ben? He will restore, and then what? Uh, verse 10. It's the second of the four things. Good. Okay. So restore minus confirm or establish maybe is that second one for certain people. What's your second one, Alexa? Yeah. Okay. So if we need to be confirmed, if you need to be confirmed in something, that means that you're what about it? If you need to be confirmed in it, you are what? Unsure? Is that where you're going to go, London? Yeah, doubting it. So that means that as Christians in this life, we're going to experience what? Yeah, doubt and uncertainty. That doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. That doesn't mean that everything's broken or that you failed or that Christianity is untrue. Peter's saying these uncertainties that you remember when John John the Baptist is thrown in prison, he sends a, a, a messenger to Jesus. And what does the messenger ask Jesus? Do you remember this? He asks him, are you the Christ? Because he doesn't believe it anymore. He's doubting, right? We're going to doubt things in life. And that's, that's okay. That's part of life, buffeting the Christian. That's okay. But we look to after this world when Jesus will establish us in everything. The next one, mine, my next one is strengthen. All right, Devin, if we have to be strengthened later, if you have to be strengthened, that means how do you feel right now? 
So Christianity, Erica, will be a life consisting of what? If we need to be strengthened, we'll feel how? Yeah, a, a life of weakness. A life of feeling weak. Are you super pumped yet for Christianity? Like, that's how, it, that's how it's going to feel. And then the last one that I have is establish you. What's the last one that people have? Yeah, settled, established. If you're established somewhere, or what was yours, Alexa? Yeah, okay. If you need to, and it all kind of connects together. If you need to be established somewhere, then what's, what's the opposite of that? If you need to be established somewhere, putting in roots, established somewhere, before that, you're what? Yeah, lost, wandering, unsure. What's going on? Is this for real? Oh my gosh. In other words, Jesus is going to make all these things right. Uh, but in the meantime, you're going to feel broken down and in need of being restored. You're going to feel really uncertain about some of these things. And Jesus will be able to confirm you. You're going to feel really weak. And you're going to need to be strengthened. You're going to feel rootless and a bit lost, or maybe a lot lost. I read one guy who said, do any of the New Testament letters make it sound like any of the apostles were mentally healthy people? And it doesn't. And this is super important because in our age, now listen, mental health is super important, but in our age of putting mental health on a pedestal, we need to remember that mental health is helpful, but too often we slip into this idea that we can create a paradise here on earth for us if we'll follow the right programs, get enough sleep, eat the right things, and follow these five steps. But we forget that we as humanity cannot build paradise. Because why? What's ironic about that statement? Humans can't build paradise because why? True, and we're even more than that. We're the ones who lost it. We're the ones who broke it in the first place. So we can't build it back. Following Christ in a broken world will negatively impact your mental health sometimes. It will. Brokenness, needing strengthening, feeling rootless and lost. This is part, you could translate this to being, are you trying to tell me something, Alexa? Is that, did you put that on purpose? Um, that's part of Christianity. And I'm not, I'm not, John Piper says, I'm not calling you to a miserable life. I'm calling you to a painful one. And it's right. He's right. He doesn't mean pain all the time, miserable, but following Jesus is going to be hard sometimes. And that's okay. That's what books of like 1 Peter. And we hope, our hope is in the fact that Jesus is going to make it better. And now, that's not to say that it's always going to be awful, but Jesus is going to fix it when you die. We can look to Jesus now to get a foretaste of what's really coming. He'll give us peace, but that peace will waver in faith, so we've got to go back to him. But one day in heaven, we get it all. Last section here. Devin, can you read 12 through 14? So, I'm going to go Sylvanus. Okay, there's a lot in there. Um, she refers to the church, okay? 
We know this from our studies of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well, okay? In 2nd John, he refers to the church as the elect lady. Here in 1st Peter, he says, she who is likewise chosen. Peter is referring to the church. God chooses his people, rescues his people, and they become part of the church. The elect lady, the chosen woman. Babylon, we know this from our study in Revelation, so Alexa's the only one. Do you remember what Babylon means? so good. The world system, okay? Now, Babylon here almost certainly means Rome, okay? The Roman Empire. But just the world system. The woman who is in the midst of a world system that does not want her to be there. That's what it is. We're all like that. We're all like that. There's a podcast that is owned by Christians, and it's called Food Trucks in Babylon. Because they're, isn't that so good? Because they're like here to give you some nourishment in the midst of Babylon, as you keep going. That's where we are, right? This book begins with, John Mark, or or Mark is close to Peter. It is not a biological son. This is the Mark in the book of Acts as well. Um, Probably the book of Mark. That's probably what this is in reference to. Um, A lot of people think Mark used Peter as a resource to write his gospel. They're closely connected. Um, But we don't think this means biological son. But Peter does have a mother-in-law, which means that he is what? He's, well, he's, if he has a mother-in-law, he's married. Yeah. The guys were like, I don't know. The women were like, he's married. So he's married. Yeah. So, I mean, but I don't think this is his son. But anyway, the book begins with elect exiles and ends with the chosen church. So it's kind of bookended by saying, hey, God's in control here. He chose you, he rescued you, and if he got you in his grip, nothing's going to be able to get you out. That's what he's confirming with us here. Cool? Does that make sense? Sweet. Well, that's First Peter. Um, ben, can you pray us out and we'll be done?